Welcome to the What You Should Have Been Taught podcast, where we talk about everything you should have been taught in school but weren't. In particular, we'll focus on finances, fitness, and creating a phenomenal life on your terms. I'm your host, Kate Hildreth, former USA rugby player, entrepreneur, and real estate investor. I'm also LGBTQ, so if you're looking for a queer mentor you can trust, you finally found one. Let's dive in. Let's dive in. Well, I'm super excited for the guest I'm introducing you to today. It's Jillian Potter, and we've known each other for years, both as friends and from our time spent playing on the USA rugby team together. And Jill has so many things, but to name a few, she's a former USA rugby player, an Olympian, cancer survivor, and most recently, an entrepreneur who's launched a coffee grocery in Indianapolis. So in today's interview, we're going to explore her experience as an elite athlete, lessons learned from captaining the 2016 USA Olympic women's rugby sevens team, and of course, perhaps most importantly, how she came to be opening up the first LGBTQ plus women-owned coffee grocery in the state of Indiana. So Potter, welcome to the show. Hey, Ken. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I almost pooped earlier. I was almost like, woo, yeah. (laughs) You're allowed to woo at any time. (laughs) (laughs) It's one of the things I love about you is your positive energy. So now that we've given everyone a glimpse of where you are now, let's go back in time. Let's start at the beginning. So where did you grow up and what were some of your earliest passions, whether that was sports, hobbies, anything that you loved? Yeah. So I um, am from Austin, Texas, and I have a twin brother and an older sister. So um, I grew up around Austin and more specifically in the hill country um, in a little town called Kerrville, Texas. Growing up, mostly I skateboarded. I hung out with my brother and his friends and my group of friends were mostly young boys and we played outside. I think we lived in a time where we would go to school and then we'd come home, do our homework, do our chores, and then my dad and my parents were like, okay, I'll see you at sundown, go outside. And we would go play outside all day, not even in the yard. It could be all over town. And then as long as we came back for dinner, like that was the expectation, you know, go to school. I mean, we had to walk two miles to school, walk two miles to school, come back, do your chores, do your homework, and then you get to play. And so most of my childhood was kind of on that schedule. And then I picked up sports more officially in seventh grade when I started playing basketball. That's awesome. And I love the freedom that your family gave you. I think that it shifted over time. And and I have very fond callback memories, too, of running around all over the neighborhood, knowing all of the parents and exploring the local park and pond and so on. I also love that you were just playing and, you know, experiencing your body, experiencing nature from such a young age. Yes, it's one of those things I love to do with Augie, my son. He's three years old now. But, you know, it's not, it's a little bit different. I can't just send him out, obviously not at three, but even three years from now, four years from now, you can't just send them out into the world and be like, see you later. Exactly. <laughs> you know, we also didn't lock our doors at night. So that was the kind of, you know, childhood I had. Arguably, I could see why it's not so great now. I, you know, in Denver, when I was living there, I left my car keys in my car, as you do. And then, you know, someone came in and stole my car. Well, that's what you kind of got. How'd that happen? Did they break into the garage? Did they do all this? I'm like, no, I just left my keys in there. <laughs> well, <laughs> Maybe it's still I'm not, too trusting. <laughs> I was going to say, it's still not cool that they took your car. I'm going to say that out loud, even if the police wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. In, in fact, this is, is funny is that one of the things that I think is become more and more of age when we come into who we are as people is coming back to our inter- my internal ethics system is one of the most important things to me is am I living in alignment with that? And that's a huge question that I ask myself. So I, I love that you were like, I'm a trusting person. I have a car and I have keys. <laughs> it's just natural to leave them here. And yes, yes, you had a consequence, but uh, you know, Hey, I don't know if they acted in alignment with their personal ethics system, or perhaps they have a terrible system and they did. How did you first find rugby and what drew you to it? I found rugby in college when I was 19 years old and I was walking across campus when some, someone tapped me on the shoulder and said, Hey, do you want to play rugby? And my first response was no. I had never heard of the game, had no interest in it, was going to play basketball or wanting to walk on to the University of New Mexico um, basketball team. And I said no. Then literally not yet the next day, someone comes up, different part of campus, taps me on the shoulder, asks me to play rugby. I say no again. And this would happen multiple times. And finally, I was like, okay, I'm coming out. When am I showing up? And they're like, Tuesday at Johnson Field. So I show up and it was tackling and fitness. And I was like, oh, 
Yeah, this is for me. (laughs) Were you you doing something when you were walking around campus? Were you in sporty clothes? Were you coming out of the gym? Were you just vibing that you were athletic? Yeah, I mean, I was probably vibing that I was really gay, but (laughs) (laughs) probably wearing athletic clothes. Um, I think I uh, lived in sweatpants in college. You know, and then to answer your question about what drew me to it, I would say one of the special things about rugby is that anyone from different backgrounds with different shapes, different sizes, different anything, right, is welcome. There's a position for everyone in rugby. And it was very inclusive and welcoming. And I mean, honestly, it changed my life. So whenever I talk to rugby players, and this was certainly my experience too, they tend to use the language home. They they found a safe haven or a home, a sanctuary, a place uh, of acceptance. Did it feel like that to you? Absolutely. And I really think it gave me the courage to come out as gay. You know, in the town that I grew up in, there was a girl that was cut from the basketball team for being a lesbian. And, you know, you at the time, I mean, I knew it was wrong, but I hadn't quite known I was gay yet. And so I was like, okay, this is just not not okay. It's not okay to be like this, you know, and then you just kind of move on. And it really wasn't until college where I felt safe to be myself, to be authentic and to really build those relationships um, with a community that would support me. Isn't it crazy that that's not that long ago that that happened? Like you, you think, how, how could that possibly happen? And it still happens today, just hopefully at lower rates. But I'm thinking about the subliminal messaging <laughs> that that gave to you and the other people who saw that happen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's not okay to be gay. It's not okay to be you. And it was a very white, predominantly Christian in those school. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to be cut from the basketball team. So... <laughs> So you waited to the right time in college and then you found your safe haven in rugby and you were able to be authentically who you are. And, and I agree with you that it's beautiful that rugby intrinsically sets up interdependence because you need that short person for scrum half and you need that you know speedy as heck person to be out, out wide and you need the tall people, you need the strong people, you need the big people and you can't be all of them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a required interdependence. No, oh, I love that about rugby. It's, it's truly special. There's not, there might be other sports that have some variation, but a lot of sports, when I watch them, I think, gosh, all the body types look the same. They're all within a few inches of each other or body weights. And, and I love watching rugby that it does not look like that. Yeah. And I think too, I mean, as I kind of mentioned before is it's more inclusive in terms of, you know, cost, right? Like being able to join a rugby club takes mm-hmm. uh, a pair of cleats and a mouth guard. That's it. You don't have to have expensive equipment. You don't have to go travel all over the place. So for that regard too, I think it's really uh, a wonderful sport. It's an awesome point because uh, entry-level mouth guards under $10 and you can usually borrow a pair of cleats. I've certainly certainly lent an older pair of cleats and sometimes just one that didn't fit my foot as well. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and if they were recruiting as hard as they were on your campus, I think they would have even helped you with the footwear if you'd asked. <laughs> oh, sure. And they did. And they did, you know. And, and when I became captain of the team, I would also walk around and hunt women and people to, <laughs> to play rugby, even anyone. I'd be like, oh my gosh, you would be a perfect rugby player. Come join our team. I'll hook you up with um, whoever you need to talk to. And um, So you so. carried the torch forward. Yes. <laughs> do, you, do you remember the first time you were selected for a USA rugby camp? Not necessarily a team, but a camp. You know, I was um, 19 years old. I had been playing rugby for about three months. And the, my coach from university had begged the U19 coaches to let me come. And it was in Austin. And he's like, listen, I'm telling you, she can just stay with her family and she'll bring her lunch. She'll do whatever you say and then she'll leave. You don't have to take care of her. You don't have to feed her. You don't have to do anything. Just let her come. And, and so once they said yes to him, I didn't even know USA existed. He, he grabs me by the shoulders and he looks at me and says, Jillian, you just say, yes, ma'am. No, ma'am, you bring your own lunch. You don't cause trouble. You go in there and you do the job. And I was like, got it. <laughs> so that was my, you know, kind of first experience. I um, was an outsider because I didn't have a room with a team, right? I had to come in. My sister had to drop me off. And if there was any downtime, I hung out with a physical therapist, right, in her room. And it was a very interesting experience. One of my fondest memories actually was I was standing in the huddle. And we were talking about an exit strategy, how to play out of the 22. And I looked over to my left and I said, hey, what's the 22? And she's like, oh, it's, it's this line that we're standing on. I'm like, oh, I see. Okay. But like, I had no idea what they were talking about. I was just like, I'm here to play rugby. If you have the ball, I'll tackle you. 
And uh, that's about all I knew. <laughs> I, you know, talking about the inclusive nature of rugby, I also <laughs> love that you only need to know a few rules to get started. You're going to have right. a lot of obscure ones you learn over time, but there's only a few you need to go to get started. Go forward up the field, <laughs> yep. tackle the person with the ball. If you yep. have the ball, expect to be tackled. <laughs> right across the white line at the other end of the field. Go. <laughs> yes, that's it. that's it. And then over time, we'll teach you some other little twists. But uh, I love your story of someone being such an advocate. I think it was your coach that was an advocate. That's right. And who believed in you. And then also that you showed up with that humble attitude of it's okay if I'm not boarding with the team and I'm just going to play because I enjoy playing and I'm going to meet some people and I'm going to go home. And you didn't, and you could tell me if I'm wrong, you didn't speak to the outcome. You just spoke to wanting to go play and wanting to be there. So that detached, being detached from like needing an outcome from the situation necessarily. Yeah. I mean, I didn't really knew what it all meant at the time. And I was like, cool. Yeah. USA U19s, whatever that means. Like I just want to play and have fun. And honestly, I think one of the things that I think made me a little bit more humble and less, I, I guess, like pressure heavy, right, is mm -hmm. just not being attached to any outcome, yeah. right? And just bringing that joy that rugby gave me each and every day and trying to build my teammates up. I mean, that's that's what you can, can do. You can do. So is enjoy the present moment, as they say, right? <laughs> I hope to be this myself when I play and it was always my favorite teammates and you definitely fell in that category. I loved the teammates who were like golden retrievers. They, oh, yeah. they got to the field and they just had to run. They had to wiggle. The ball ball was, you know, got into play and they had to tackle and they had to get their energy out. And you could just see the joy and the pleasure and the simplicity in the present moment. And I'm like, golden retriever teammates, they are, they're the ones you want to play with. <laughs> Thanks for calling me that. That's awesome. Yes. Um, you know, people would say, you know, oh, Jillian, do you know you smile when you play rugby? I was like, no, I did not know that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Are you sure I wasn't like grimacing? <laughs> so did, would you say that, Kay? Was I, I, was I a big smiler? When ab I absolutely. Oh, yeah. and, and I always think like if I, if I only had a little bit of time left on this earth, I'd be like, can I go play a rugby match? Like, because it's so much fun, right? So yeah. I think there is just some such joy, such presence and some people have even used the term, you know, that there's an addictiveness in a good way, in a healthy way, that it's sure. just so pleasing. You're in the present moment and you're just loving the experience. Yeah, I haven't played rugby in some time, but perhaps. <laughs> well, you, you certainly <laughs> play a, a lot of it at a high level. So on that note, <laughs> do you remember the first national team event that you competed in? Ooh. And when you say competed, do you mean internationally or do you mean domestically? Yeah. If, if you remember, let's go internationally. Yeah. It was in 2007, is that's when I received my first cap for Team USA. And it was a brutal tour. It was in December in England. It was raining all the time, very, very cold. I broke my finger. And <laughs> that would happen on like day two of being at camp. And I had, you know, I think I was, yeah, like I said, 19. I had an ego, I think, a little bit. And so I was butting heads with some of the other players quite a bit. So it wasn't really an enjoyable experience. I mean, I think um, the food was terrible. I broke my finger. My first test match, I ended up having to play a lock, which is a position in the middle of the scrum. And we were playing England. We were getting smashed. I had two black guys and a bloody nose. And I was like, what is this? <laughs> like, this is really hard. And walking away from that tour, I just thought, okay, how do I get better? And I learned a lot of lessons on that tour about, you know, my attitude and my ego and, you know, how to work better with others, especially like when you're young, because you're, you know, you think you're top dog or so. <laughs> was this a, a U19 or U23 team or is this the national team that you had burst national right team. in on? That's awesome. Yeah. Not the, the experience you just described, but that you had broken onto that scene that early. So congrats. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. It was like, let's see. Was I still, I think I was. I guess if I did the math, let's see, 19 was in, I can't do the math. I'd have to have it. <laughs> I honestly, I'd have to have the calculator, but I would say it was very early on and I was either 19 or 20 and yeah. And also for anyone who heard me laugh uh, when Potter mentioned breaking her finger, I was not laughing at the sentiment. I was laughing at the, the finger that she held up on the video that looks a little wonky yet to this day. <laughs> yes, it does not straighten. Um, so yeah, I have to wear mittens, not gloves. And if I drop my keys between the door and your seat, mm -hmm. brutal. I have to get all the way out of the car and use my <laughs> other hand <laughs> to fetch my keys. So, yeah. But it looks like you're always ready to grab something. You know, it's perfect positioning for catching a rugby ball. Yes, that's right. Yep. yep. So you're per permanently ready. <laughs> <laughs>
So I believe in 2013, 2014, you competed in the Rugby uh, Sevens World Cup in Moscow and then the Rugby World Cup in France. Is, is that correct? That's correct. Yep. And then what do these events mean to you personally? And, and then also, what did they mean to women's rugby at large at that point in time? I think my favorite event of all time was the 2013 World Cup for Rugby Sevens in Russia. And it was super special because that group of women really represented the first ever professional contract, contracted women in the United States. And so it was a pivotal moment for us, for our, for our country, and really for the future of women's rugby. And then for 2014, I was really looking forward to that World Cup because I had broken my neck before the 2010 World Cup. And so for me, you know, having that outcome of I, I'm going to make it. I'm going to go to 2014. That was something that I went for, I guess, since breaking my neck. That's kind of what got me. How, how did I, you get injury? I was playing rugby against Canada in 2010, about a month before residency. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was crazy. And I could say like that normally, and don't worry, your kids should still play rugby. My accident was a fluke. People don't break their neck playing rugby. That's just like, doesn't really happen. So just a little disclaimer and, there. <laughs> and you're moving, moving great and have kids of your own. You'd, I think that you would put in rugby, correct? Yeah, 100%. Oh, for sure. So yes. ex exactly. Most things can be put back together. There's, I mean, there's some very good orthopedic fixes and you got to live your life. You have to have some fun with it. That's right. That's right. So yeah, I think that's it um, in terms of, of 2013, 2014. That was a really monumental period for the growth of the women's rugby national side and the sport at large, I think on a global, both in the United States and globally, it was expanding and we're moving towards the Olympics and a very, very important time. And again, these are recent time periods. This is what's mind blowing is like these opportunities for women in sports and women's sports at large, whoever's competing in them there. I think we're going to forget how recently these opportunities emerged. That's true. And even before I came onto the scene and had the professional contract, you had to pay to play. I mean, most of my income was for rent and for rugby. That was it, you know, and, and club dues and things like that. And so we're very, very different now, I think, for, for women and young players. And I'm so happy to see these changes. And I, and again, the, the, what's really wild is that this is in the last decade. Seriously. Uh, so, I know. so glad with the progress <laughs> in the decade we've had. I hope the next decade is profoundly more expansive. And maybe we'll see more gender uh, pay equality over time. That would be really superb across various sports. It's happening. It's, it's happening. happening. Yeah. <laughs> And in 2014, you got a difficult medical diagnosis. Could you share what events led to this diagnosis when you received it and really how you felt and responded? Yes. Yeah, so I was diagnosed with stage three synovosarcoma in 2014, right after the Rugby World Cup. And we actually found the tumor multiple months before that. But they're like, hey, listen, you know, you're young, you don't drink, you don't smoke, like you don't have family history of cancer. The odds of you having cancer is zero, especially with the location. And they had found it in the floor of my mouth, which is a super bizarre place, right? And so like, go ahead and go to the World Cup. And then when you come back, we'll have the surgery and then we'll go from there. So I went off to Europe and I mean, I swear the tumor grew, grew by the day. So it went from like, one by one centimeter to 10 by eight by five, which is about the size of my hand. Wow. So I played the entire World Cup with that tumor and it had pushed my tongue up into the roof of my mouth so that, you know, I had trouble breathing. I was snoring at night. I didn't really talk too much to my teammates, right? Because I was tired. And, and to be fair, I didn't remember much of the World Cup because all I really remember is playing and being exhausted. And like going to sleep and my poor roommate had to change rooms because I was keeping her awake from my snoring, which I couldn't obviously change. So we flew back to the States and then I had the surgery. And about a week later, they told me I had sarcoma. And then about three weeks later, they were able to identify the subcategory. So saying it was sarcoma. Now, sar sarcoma is a general term for a soft tissue cancer. And it's a pretty rare and very aggressive. And so we had to go and get special treatment um, recommendations by MD Anderson in Houston. When your tumor was growing while you were at the World Cup, what were you thinking? I intuitively knew something was wrong, but I was very naive about cancer. You know, I had never experienced it and not a lot of people in my family had it. So I really wasn't sure that a tumor meant cancer. Like I just mm -hmm. thought, Whatever this is, is not good, but I didn't really 
have that correlation in my mind. Even when I got the diagnosis, right? The doctor said, okay, you have sarcoma. You're going to have to go see an oncologist. But he didn't actually say the word cancer. And so I was sitting there and he got up and left the room. And I looked to my athletic trainer and uh, she said, do you want a hug? And I was like, sure. So I... <laughs> So I give her a hug and she's like, what would you like to do? Do you want to go home? I was like, well, actually, I'm just really hungry. Do you like want to go get lunch? And she's like, probably thinking I'm crazy, right? And then so we have some lunch and then I, I go home because she's like, you should probably just go home and not come back to the Olympic Training Center. And I was like, okay, yeah, fine. And then I Googled and then I realized that the severity of my diagnosis, right? So I think really it was just the doctor could have been Wah, 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 wah. Like I, I wouldn't, yeah, I wasn't really. When you were going into the <clears throat> surgery to remove the tumor, did, how were you feeling beforehand? Oh, just like any routine surgery. I was like, okay, get this out of me. Like I'm tired of having this <laughs> in my mouth. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't. With rugby, you'd see you'd so many teammates just to have a, a quick surgery here and there that it was like, <laughs> let's yeah. just go handle this. <laughs> yeah. Like let's, let's get it out. And like we'll move on and figure out next steps. And like, I, at that time I wasn't even thinking cancer honestly. So you I don't know, know if it, that was a blessing or not. I, like, I, I, think, it, I think it probably yeah. was a blessing because you would, mind stories can come on and make a situation have additional layers that aren't necessary. What was happening is there was a growing tumor and you know, that's what would be, you know, seen if you're recording the event and then there's all the layers that the mind would tell you about what that means, you know, Oh, this is scary. Oh, this is painful. So I, I think it sounds like a blessing. <laughs> you're yeah, just I mean, I was situation. <laughs> very distracted at the world cup, right? Just like surviving. And luckily I was very fit. And so I was able to play um, most of the games at the World Cup. And yeah, and yeah, but never, because of that experience, I remember thinking, hey, do you want to go and try for another 15s World Cup? And I was like, no, never. I was so tired. <laughs> but I'm not, I mean, I'm sure my experience is way different than others. Did you um, notice any breathing difficulty while you were playing or were you so distracted that it wasn't affecting you? And Yeah, that's a good question. I think I was just so distracted. It wasn't really affecting me. There was one moment during the Australian game, and you would get this. It was on the try line. We're our defending try line here. And I'm on my, I'm in a three-point stance, right? Because they're doing the pick and go. And I remember seeing uh, Sharon and and thinking, oh my God, because she's a really good player. I was like, please don't come this way. I was (laughs) like, I am in my mind. I was like, don't come this way because I'm so tired. But I mean, obviously she would look at me and be like, oh, that's Jillian. Don't go that way. Right. Like, cause we went back um, to different, I mean, that, now that I don't mean to sound that like that's ego. That's not ego, but I mean, we knew each other enough right. that like when we made the eye contact, I was like, I dare you, but please don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, there, there always is a decision who looks fatigued, who looks smaller, who looks like there's a bit more spacing right there. Uh, yeah, so yes, there, yeah. you could absolutely will someone a different direction by one the demeanor, but also too, if some of those variables, you know, <laughs> they work. <laughs> not because I'm all that amazing. That's not what I mean. Just like, yeah. Well, well I'll say variables. you're an amazing rugby player. It's okay for me, not you. <laughs> so what was the process of sharing the news with your teammates and your coaches? My coaches knew right away, but I had to hold on to that information for my teammates because we really didn't know what that meant, right? We had this diagnosis but we didn't know the treatment plan. We were on a, we had a schedule for Houston a number of weeks down in the future. And so literally it was like, Jillian, like you don't have to come to practice. You don't have to do anything. Um, you don't have to play. And so I would show up and people were like, well, what's wrong with you? I'm like, mm, nothing. And it was a really hard secret to keep. And I had to keep it for, I'm going to say probably like two weeks before we finally, I couldn't hold it anymore. And I was like, I've got, let's get our sports psychologist in here. Let's have a team conversation. And let's just break the news and say, hey, we're still trying to figure this out because it's really, they're getting upset that I'm not playing because of this this perception of fairness, right? And yeah, like, why does Joe get to sit out and not do fitness or do this? Like it was during kind of the, the hard off season, you know? <laughs> and so, but yeah, that was a pretty challenging time. I remember saying, to the girls, I had cancer and my, I, my whole body was shaking physically and I was really nervous and they, they were really wonderful and supportive. I think, you know, the hardest kind of delivery was to my mom. And that was, that was probably the, I only cried a handful of times, right? After my diagnosis, my diagnosis one, I had to tell my mom. And then again, when I shaved my hair off my head, 
And so I guess that's two, <laughs> two times. <laughs> but yeah. And what was it like going through treatment, first of all, that experience? And what was it like also knowing that your teammates were actively still competing and training while you were doing that? You know, my coach said, or Rick, as you know him, yeah. he he said, listen, Jillian, he goes, this is the most important game. This is a game for your life. He I goes, I that. want you to know that this will be back. This will be here when you come back. Like rugby does not matter right now. And just know that we'll take care of it here. And we'll be thinking about you and we'll be sending you messages and everything else. But he's like, it is not the time to think about rugby or us at all. And that was a big, that was a big thing for him to say, right? That really helped me uh, kind of be at ease. And so it wasn't like I was looking over the fence and thinking, oh man, I, I wish I was there because I really had to direct all of my attention to the present. And, but I did do some things, right? Like to give me some motivation, I guess, like I would hang my USA jersey over my IV pole. I had this plan. Um, so I went through a four day inpatient chemotherapy and every day before the infusion, I would walk around the hospital campus. And that was like a two mile loop. And I had to go with my IV pole. And it would sometimes it would take me not that long. Sometimes it would take me a couple hours, right? And obviously day one, it looks a lot different than day four, but I had to go on my walk every single day. And if I couldn't go on my walk, then I would go to the yoga room where I can do some stretching, do some yoga, or just meditate if I'm feeling really, really bad. But I did those things because one, it gave me a sense of control. And two, I felt like I was putting myself in a good position to come back. In fact, I asked my oncologist for a physical therapy prescription. He's like, well, why do you need that? I said, well, all this chemo is going to make me less strong, right? Like, yeah. I'm not going to have the energy to go to the gym. And like, this is an opportunity for me to fix a bunch of weaknesses that I've developed over the years, you know, and imbalances that I've had from tackling people for 10 years. So can you just give me this so I can, you know, Let's walk and be healthy or whatever? And he's like, oh, sure. Yeah, sign me up. So the funniest uh, part of this is my physical therapist that, I was rooming with when I was 19 for my first ever USA camp was my physical therapist um, during my cancer treatment, during my overcoming my neck injury, right? So she knew me very well. And so we would, we would set up our physical therapy appointments. And some days I didn't do much, but I was there and I had intention and I had a vision of getting back to the field as soon as I could. I love so many things about what you just <laughs> described. One was that you were taking care of your body, even while you were taking care of your body, you were taking care right. of it medically, but you were still taking care of it in all these other ways and setting goals. And on top of that, I love that you also had a self-awareness and gentleness with that process that sometimes you had to modify it and be in the yoga room or meditate or do other things that's needed. Where were you doing your, your treatment? What medical campus was that? That was at UCH in Denver. And one of the, you know, I spent a lot of time at the Mayo Clinic. Uh, my sister's gone through, well, I've spent a lot of time in the Mayo Clinic <laughs> and campus in Rochester. And when you're there, one of the things that's kind of unique is that everyone there, when they ask you how you're doing, actually means that they're actually ready to listen for an answer. And there's a degree of compassion and, and uh, concern from person to person that even among those that don't know each other. And so I think sometimes there's a unique energy at medical campuses that th doesn't exist elsewhere. Yeah. And I would say, you know, the relationships that you build, it, it's, it's almost like its own small community of sorts, even though my cancer would be completely different from any other Anyone else's cancer, even if you had synovial sarcoma in the same spot with the same kind of treatment plan, nothing will ever look the same to anyone else, right? And you've got people that are very competitive, um, competitive almost about their cancers. And I never obviously got into that, but it was just like, hey, we're here. This really sucks. And if you're asking me how I'm doing and I say, you know, I'm having a really bad day, that's okay. Like, they're like, yeah, okay. I'm here. I get that. I also loved the visual of your USA jersey over the Ivy pole. <laughs> Just, I got chills from it because I'm like, it's so great, you, you know, taking care of your own state in that moment and, you know, visuals and uh, things that have emotional charge like that. That was, an, I think that was an awesome choice. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I mean, think when I couldn't play rugby, I would, I would do a lot of visualization. So I'd play rugby in my head. Now I knew, right, like the chances of me getting back to the Olympics was probably pretty small. But I also wanted to give myself the best shot to do it. And I knew that no one believed that I could. So I was also like, you know what? I'm going to prove them wrong. 
but you know, here's the thing about cancer, right? It's like you uh, are, are dealt a hand of cards and really depending on how your hands play is how things are going to turn out. So like for me, I was dealt a really good hand, like given the situation, like I didn't have a lot of complications up front. I was able to handle radiation well. Like I was able to do a lot of things that put me in the position to come back to play rugby. There are many people that couldn't have done that. So I think it really just depends on the, the hand that you're dealt. And I was very fortunate for that. You really, really were. And that's part of what contributed to 2015 when you had, if I do say so myself, a heroic comeback. <laughs> Returning <laughs> yeah. to the Olympic team center, Olympic training center to prepare for the 2016 Olympic summer games that were in Rio. Mm. And I'm curious, what was it like to transition back into that level of training and intensity and competition? It was hard. And so all of that grace and all of that self-compassion almost <laughs> vanishes because <laughs> I was very slow. I was slow and you have to let go. I was a different player. I was like, before I was sick, I felt like I was on the top of my game. Like I was improving and I was really hitting my stride on the international scene. And then I got cancer. And so I was holding on to this vision of who I was and not thinking about, okay, how am I going to be a different player? I'm obviously a different player now because I've had trauma because something has happened to me. How do I play differently? And so I ended up playing differently, Um, but I had to accept that first. And I almost had to grieve that identity, you know, like letting it go, saying, this is no longer serving me. I'm not that person. As much as I want that, I'm not. So I had to reframe my mind to kind of get into that state so that I can say, these are what I'm going to focus on to get to the Olympics. And then of course, I'm happy to be here. Like, man, that was a really tough year. And like, if I make the Olympics, awesome. And <laughs> so and I, I worked hard for it. So, you know, that was a little bit of, of the comeback, but there was definitely some ups and downs for sure. I love it. And you were talking about changing the style of your play. And what I love is it recognizes that the body's a tool. <laughs> Sometimes the tool's a little different. <laughs> yeah. And we're going to have to wield it a little bit differently. But one of the beautiful things about rugby is that there is absolutely a physical component and there's a mental and skill component, both of those as well. And so it's, how do you use that trio of those three to become the best possible player overall? So you might've had a little lower score on the physical front, but your skill and mental capacity could still be just as high, if not higher, because you're giving them attention. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. And focusing on your strengths, like what are you bringing to the table today? And so instead of me getting bogged down on my 40 time, right? I, I knew it would come back at some point. I could say, listen, I've never been the fastest player anyway, but I can certainly be the fittest. I can certainly have a great pass. I can certainly focus on these three things that will make me Jillian and this is my job. And then that's it. I think we often focus too much time on our shoulds, our should be's or our weaknesses. And like, we ain't got time for that. You know, if you want to be... The, an Olympian in your life, like you got to focus on your strengths. So that's a little bit how I reframed my mind a little bit. So for the 2016 Olympics, I believe you captain the USA Rugby Sevens team. Is that correct? Yes, I would um, say kind of co-captain with Kelly Griffin. But yeah, I would say that was, I did the whole year of 2016. And then we kind of co-captain at the Olympic Games. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Another great leader. What, what leadership lessons did you learn from the experience of leading such strong athletes and also personalities? when you talked about stress and pressure and, you know, different styles, I think it was really tough 2016. We had a lot of different adversities that we had to overcome as a team. We had multiple coaching changes and player transitions. And I think you got to give people the benefit of the doubt, you know, even if they're mean and sometimes cruel and just like very self-centered. And it makes sense. Like these things do happen in sport. Like teams aren't just going to be perfect without kind of some conflict and challenges. And for us, that Rio year was storming at its finest, right? Thunder, lightning, everything else. And um, as a leader, I think you can just do the best that you can by showing up authentically, being willing and open to listen, trying to provide logic and not let you know your emotions take hold. Because we had a lot of really strong personalities on that team. And, and it, was, it was definitely a challenge um, to lead that group, for sure. So many great lessons there. And yes, elite athletes are put in a, a pressure cooker. There's so much stress in that situation. And to be able to see that people's behavior was really as much a result of the situation 
if not more so than our personalities, that, that, that is a leadership lesson for sure. You know, <laughs> and at the important. Olympics itself, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead, Kate. I'm just going to say, it sounds like you approach it with, with patience and, and a degree of kindness too. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, at the Olympics, it was a little bit different, but you have to be able to have those candid conversations. You have to be able to work through that conflict and just know that, take a step back for a second, you know, like oftentimes it's very easy to get you know, stuck in and, and really on the nitty gritty and kind of just take a break, like take a walk, take a step, step back. And I had to do that a lot. Just kind of ground, ground yourself. You know, we're here. We want to win a gold medal. Like let's be united. And at the Olympics, we were able to do that. Leading up to it, I wish we were more united, but I think that's the difference between a gold medal and fifth place. Like had we been more united, we might've been a medal contender and a lot of times I think, you know, hey, like, how could I have done better? I'm not sure I could. You know, I think I, I did the best that I could. And that's I, when I look at myself in the mirror, that's what I see. Wait, what was it like being responsible at an Olympic level, not only for yourself, <laughs> you're competing at an Olympic level yourself, but also being responsible for the performance of the, the entire squad? Yeah, well, I would say I wasn't really responsible for the performance of the squad. I think the nice thing about the Olympics is, Sometimes you do take that back seat as a leader and I just let the team team roll with it. I spoke very little, to be honest, at the Olympic Games, Uh, maybe here and there, but really let some of the other players speak up and use their voices. And that's what they needed. Right. And so that's that's what you give them. You give them that space and um, you try to nurture them You say, okay, like, yeah, let's do it. This is what you want to say. I'm I'm backing you because I trust you and we're united together. And this is what we're going to do. I absolutely love that. I love that. It's it's such great wisdom. And I'm curious, who's an athlete that you've always looked up to and and why? Oh, man. Well, arguably, I think I'm a really terrible kind of athlete in that I don't watch a lot of other sports or get involved in celebrities. (laughs) So I would say, honestly, I really admire all of my teammates, everyone that I've had uh, the pleasure of, of playing with, of learning from, and every single one of the players that I've played with or against especially against, right? Like you learn so much from them and you're able to take away and see them grow as humans, as people, as rugby players. And I think that's the best part, you know, is, is taking those micro lessons to just be a better human. So I can't answer that question for one person because I just don't have it. It's the best answer possible. It's, it's, the, it's your teammates and opponents collectively. What, that's yeah. a beautiful answer. And I love that a few times you've come back to living in this moment, in this world, in this body. I think with all the technology emerging in the metaverses, I'm like, I really enjoy this world. I'm, I'm sure there'll be incredible experiences in the metaverse, probably will enjoy exploring it, but gosh, I really want to live the, the core of my life <laughs> in this body, in this experience, in this reality, yes, uh, in this present moment. And I'm hearing that yeah. from you over and over and over. And, and I love that you're coming back to that. No, thank you. Yeah. And I mean, when you say metaverse, I'm like, yeah, what is that? <laughs> I guess, <laughs> do you mean the internet? Three D virtual worlds that are. Oh emerging. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I know. I, you know, I, 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 that has no interest for me. And a part of me just wants to swoop argue away so that he doesn't get exposed to that. And I'm like, no, you can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> and and you have another one on the way, right? Are you coming yes. with baby number two? When's that one due? On July seventeenth. We're we'll having we're having a baby girl. So that is awesome. Congratulations yeah. in advance. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'm I'm very nervous. One is like, you've got two on one. Now it's two on two and everything's up for grabs. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> might, have to change, might have to change your defense or, or your strategy, just like yeah. in rugby. <laughs> totally, totally. <laughs> so now that you've retired from international rugby, you've decided to make a bold move and open up a coffee roastery. <laughs> yes, I know. What, I know. <laughs> what, what inspired this new business venture and who's undertaking it with you? Okay, so listen, I fell in love with coffee in San Diego while training for the Olympics. And um, I have to say, when I first was drinking coffee, I was probably like most of us, right? Just black coffee drinker, like it dark, like it thick, like the sludge, like it. You know, I don't put anything in there. And I was studying for my MBA online and I went to a coffee shop in San Diego and I said, hey, can I have a cup of coffee? And they're like, what kind do you want? Black. Mm -hmm." And from where? And I was like, ah. the place you get coffee. <laughs> so, like, I just had no idea that coffee came from all the way across the world, that different regions had different flavor profiles. And so that's kind of when I started my coffee journey, right? I would go to different coffee shops while I was studying on the weekends. I would try coffees from different regions. And on the World Series is 
instead of going to the Eiffel Tower or wherever you go all the time as a tourist, I was like, you know what? I'm going to take this day. I'm like, I'm going to go find a coffee shop or a coffee roaster and I'm going to talk to them. And so that's what I did, you know, as, as um, I just started making my life around coffee. And then my MBA kind of final project was about a coffee shop, not a coffee roastery, but owning a coffee shop. And then funny story is from Rio to Houston. So after the Olympics, right, you fly home and our layer of was in Houston for a number of hours. I popped up in my computer and I was like, hmm, what job am I going to have? Ah, I'm going to be a barista because I want to learn how to brew coffee. I've got to be able to understand the customer. And I got a job. I got hired the next week and I was a barista at Whole Foods. <laughs> but the end game, right, was the end game was what I'm doing now is, is having uh, my own coffee grocery, hopefully at my own cafe. And um, I had the opportunity to, to learn how to roast in Denver. There was a guy that was a, owned a coffee roasting business in Denver and he was at my gym and said, hey, like, I heard you're really into coffee. Like, let me teach you some stuff. And you really just opened the door for that path too, so. Again, I love so many things that you said. I loved it when you were traveling, you went out to these uh, coffee shops and roasteries because you enjoy talking to the people. So you like to enjoy <laughs> learning about the subject matter, but that's, you know, coming back to living in the present moment, connecting with human beings, being deeply present. I mean, these are the secrets to life. <laughs> um, and I was going to ask you how you first got trained in coffee, but it sounds like an, yet again, you had a great person who stepped up on your life and was like, I'm, I'm going to take you under my wing and give you, give you a chance here. Training. That's right. Yeah. And it's a constantly learning process, right? I think the coolest thing about coffee, and we've seen it happen over time, is there's different processing, different methods of brewing, like people have different ratios, different, all kinds of different stuff happening in the coffee world. And so I think if we can all maintain just a little bit more curiosity and openness, like that's all you can do and just keep getting better. You know, I'm not that's saying cool. I have the best coffee in the United States, but I'm going to try to give you the best coffee that I can. And um, I think that matters. And I, and I love that from a business and a marketing standpoint, because I, I would buy on that claim. I'm like, yes, I don't know that anyone can give me the best in the world because it's always evolving, but I would certainly like to support a business that's giving me the best that they can produce and is committed to evolving and growing with time. That's right. And we can always get better, right? Every single one of us. And so that's, that's kind of the mindset I'm taking is the same mindset I had in rugby is like, stay humble, stay hungry right? Stay curious and, and be willing to learn and grow and build relationships. And I love that your new business is the first LGBTQ woman-owned coffee roastery in the state of Indiana. That's quite an accomplishment, breaking down barriers again. Yeah. <laughs> so what does it mean to you to be breaking down these barriers and, and expanding the roastery business? You know, um, yeah, I'm really, I'm really excited. I think I, I actually just had a really wonderful call with the Indiana Youth Group. It's a nonprofit focused on LGBTQ youth here in Indiana. And um, we're hoping to donate all of our profits from merchandise um, to them and really try to give back to the LGBT community here in Indiana. And so that's, that's a big part is when I wanted to do this, right? I wanted to be actively involved in the community and, and lifting each other up. Saying so when I first got here, I was like, ah, we need to do more, right? We got to do more. And this is just one small way that we can kind of start that. But and obviously, you know, hey, if you have other ideas, I'm all all ears. But it's, it's cool. Like I think that's you gotta you gotta have the God, what's the what do they say? The representation. You know, representation does matter. And I want to be out there, you know, and say, yeah, listen, I'm I'm proud. I'm gay. A woman. I'm doing this. I'm being disruptive in a otherwise predominantly male, white dominated um, industry. I love it. And I agree that representation matters. And it's one of the reasons I was excited to get you on the podcast is to tell your story. I mean, it, it's incredible across uh, the different, you know, the, the rugby and the Olympics and uh, going through cancer and now this business. But I think LGBTQ stories are so exciting and they're so fun to share. And so it's really just great to share yours. I'm curious, how do you source your beans? I've always <laughs> wondered what the, the process is for setting that up. Yeah, that's a good question. So I use a number of different importers in the country, and that's kind of where I'm starting. Once you get, I guess, you have more financial income or you can build, you can actually get a direct source to a farmer and a producer. And I'm not quite there um, there yet, so I use just importers to bring me coffee. And, and generally, what they'll do is they'll bring in some lots from Ethiopia, Colombia, Guatemala, Rwanda, like you name it. And then they'll send you some samples. You'll sample roast them. You'll go through a cupping protocol and then you'll decide yay or nay based on flavor profile, based on cupping score, which is basically kind of like a sommelier of wine. There's Q graders in coffee that can grade 
and score coffee. So based on that score, based on your palate, based on how you're roasting it, like that's when you'll decide, yeah, I'll bring this in because I feel like I can sell it and do, do something really cool with it. Do you have that skill or do you have someone else do that for you? Um, well, I do cup. I'm not a cute grader yet, but that that's definitely on my agenda for this year. <laughs> so <laughs> it takes a lot of cupping and it's a pretty difficult test to so to get certified then. So, but you got to cup every day. You got to test your coffees. You got to stay consistent, right? And so cupping is a part of that. But right now it's just me and I'm going to loop in Carol as much as I can. I'm mostly for probably uh, bagging. Wife, right? Yeah, yeah, my yeah. wife. Yeah, I've had the luxury of not having to bag that much. And arguably my attention to detail to like put stickers on bags and do that is not that great. But I'm going to really try. <laughs> because it's probably going to be me for a while. Because so listen, I, I work full time at Ernst & Young. And so my my roasting and my packaging, all that stuff is going to happen on the weekends or after I'm done with normal work hours. And then, you know, if it picks up to a, a place where I'm going to have to step away, then I will, or I'll, I'll hire and I'll hire within the community. I've already talked to the, the group that I was supporting today that I mentioned, and they have some job placements for LGBTQ. And so, yeah, I think I would definitely hire someone to help. I love how you're integrating, integrating the uh, LGBTQ community in your area and how you're giving back to them. And also, I was thinking, as you were saying, your attention to you know placing the sticker just perfectly might not be the highest. Maybe that's how people will know it's handcrafted and perfectly <laughs> touched by you. <Yeah. laughs> the sticker is just off 2% to the side, right? I'll be like, oh, this by... is so Jillian. She yes, this. Exactly. God, <laughs> why am I paying this for this? <laughs> or maybe that's exactly why. I mean, how maybe. Handcrafted <laughs> coffee. <laughs> lovingly made by a coffee loving uh, Olympian. I mean, that's that's pretty special, right? <laughs> and how did you choose the business name? So this kind of ideation and of the coffee shop has been ongoing for a number of years. And we had the H logo made a number of years ago, right? For a different name. And that name was picked up by another cafe in, in Portland or something. And it's like, fine. Like I didn't trademark anything. Like I didn't register it, right? It was just this, you know, brainchild. And then I was like, okay, well, we just have to find another word, right? That has a little eight. And I also like words that are less than five letters. So let's try to figure out like Google, how many or whatever words with four letters, H, whatever you, whatever you Google, right? And Helm really stuck out to us because for us, it was like, hmm, I like it because you can, you're, you're running the helm of your life. Like you're in charge, right? And we want you to be and lead authentically and to be yourself and to like grab it, you know, just like go for it. And that a good cup of coffee and a connected community can do just that. So really that's kind of where Helm came to fruition is, is that idea of adventure and boldness and authenticity and curiosity and being at the helm of your life and building community with others to encourage each other, right? To do the same for themselves, right? So that's kind of where it came came out of. I love that. And it, it makes me curious, what did, what advice would you give to someone who is considering entrepreneurship, particularly if they're in the LGBTQ community, but anyone, they're considering entrepreneurship, but perhaps are a little nervous? You know, I would say network, put yourself out there and don't be afraid to ask questions and don't be afraid to say, I don't know, like, show me, you know, I'm, and then just at some point you just have to do it, right? Like, I think for us, we've pretty risk averse. I mean, my my wife is or was a lawyer, so we're very risk averse in this house. And so like if the things didn't like line up just right, we're like, oh gosh, well, we what can't do, you, do it. You, what do you do for <laughs> your, your current profession? Oh, I am a project manager okay, at gotcha. EY, which I didn't realize I was all that good at, but really it's all about teaming and connecting and like getting Absolutely. people to do their job. <laughs> it makes sense. Makes sense. <laughs> like you're good at this. So maybe this is what you should do, you know? <laughs> yeah. So I think at, at some point I was like, listen, we've got to just do it, right? Because we can't live our lives with regret. I don't know everything about running a coffee roastery. Like I'm going to have to figure it out on the fly and I'm going to make mistakes and I'm going to mess up, but it's fine. You just keep going. And what's the worst that can happen? You fail. Okay. Yep. Life moves on. <laughs> that's it. Enjoy the, enjoy the ride, right? Because that's all you get. Absolutely. And was there anything that was a roadblock or a challenge so far in opening it up that you, you didn't expect ahead of time, but but we're able to overcome, obviously? <laughs> oh, man. Well, I guess a, a current road, roadblock is I have some custom labels coming in and the snowstorm has created a delay. And so I have to ship out these subscriptions 
and bags and stickers that I wasn't imagining how my first release would go. <laughs> I got some thank you cards. I'm like, hey, thanks for supporting me. This is what's going on. Like, love you, mean it, Julian. They don't exactly. know that happened yet. <laughs> That's what it's, it's about to happen. <laughs> they haven't gotten no, I love yet. it. You're willing to evolve <laughs> with what the situation requires. And it's reminding me back about your stories uh, on the rugby team. It's reminding me of your ability to be flexible and adapt now. So you take action <laughs> instead of perfection and you evolve as you need to. And I, I think that you really hit on a huge entrepreneurship lesson there. Yeah. And action versus paralysis. That doesn't mean you shouldn't pause and think about it. Um, and that's probably a weakness of mine, to be honest. Like I should probably pause more. I'm generally like, boom, there's a hole, you run. If I get tackled, I'll get back up. Yep. <laughs> so there's definitely some growing that I need to do as a as an entrepreneur and as a as a businesswoman, but I'll learn it. It's well, and Rebby as a game is one that it's it's just a lot of grit and you keep going and you know, so I got into playing a lot of uh, USA Touch Rugby for a period of time, and you get six touches before you turn over the ball. So coming back to sevens and fifteens, I was like, "This is incredible! You keep the ball indefinitely until there's basically a penalty or a score, or there's a if you turn it over, that's not ideal. You basically keep it indefinitely." And I was like, "Now this is a sport I can get behind." Yeah, <laughs> and it's and similar it in, in entrepreneurship. In, in entrepreneurship too, right? You know, so you just it's okay. Maybe that phase even went backward. Yeah, Maybe it was right at gain line and you didn't go for it at all. <laughs> Sound yeah. a little bit like entrepreneurship sometimes. <laughs> totally. Absolutely. I mean, I can, I can, I can't even imagine the roadblocks I'm going to hit. There's going to be big ones. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> and perhaps the most important question of all, because it was so fun to share your story and your vision and your energy. How can people support you? How can they buy coffee from you? <laughs> how can they generally stay in touch with you? Oh yeah. Um, so I'm an open book. You can find me on Instagram, LinkedIn. If you want to buy coffee, check out Helm Coffee Roasters. So H-E-L-M, coffeeroasters.com. And then you can shoot me an email at connect at helmcoffeeroasters.com or really any handle that you see me at. So you're like, hey, Jillian, I know this is your personal handle. I'm going to hit you up. Cool. Like, <laughs> I'll answer. <laughs> I'm not the biggest social media guru, but I do check it from time to time. And I'll probably have to do it more for Helm, which is not very exciting for me, but I will try. <laughs> and maybe that's where teamwork comes in, right? Yeah. Yes. If you're good at it, hit me up. Exactly. Maybe that. I'll give you free question. coffee. How can they collaborate with you? We just answered that question. There you go. Yep. For sure. Well, this was so much fun. Thank you for your energy and for sharing your wisdom. And of course, for your time. And I'll, I'll drop all those links and ways they can get in touch with you in the show notes. Awesome. Thanks so much, kid. Absolutely. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you did, let's connect on social media so I can share in your world too. You can find me everywhere using at Kate Hildreth or online at the website kadehildreth.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe and review this podcast.